Hi, I'm Amar. And hi, I'm Steve. And welcome to the inaugural episode of Exploration Radio. As a mineral explorer, the ultimate ambition that most people have is really to make a mineral discovery, or at least to be part of a team that makes one. But the truth is, mineral discoveries are so rare that most people working as mineral explorers will never really taste success. So the question is, what does it take to be a successful explorer? Is it technical knowledge? Is it having the right strategy? Is it having lots of money so you can explore for a long time? Or is it just luck being at the right place at the right time? Considering the amount of money that actually goes into mineral exploration, finding the ingredients that lead to success is actually quite important. But what if the most important ingredient to success in a mineral exploration group was culture? What if it doesn't matter how many PhDs you have, how much money you have, and whether you have the right strategy or not? Maybe all that matters is whether you have the right culture and whether you can sustain it for long enough. If you think that the importance of culture to success seems a little nebulous, think about this. People that are successful as mineral explorers once often end up having repeated successes over their career. Now, are they just lucky again and again? Or is it, as Gary Player once said, the harder I practice, the luckier I get? What does it take to be a successful explorer? In this episode, we look at the building of an explorer culture, a discovery culture. What does that mean? We're going to pull apart this concept of culture by interviewing Mark Bennett, a successful mineral explorer who's evolved his own views and his own successful culture. For those of you that don't know Mark, well, he's been involved in exploration for the better part of two decades and has been involved in the discovery of no less than four deposits, the most recent of which was the Nova Bollinger deposit in Western Australia. Recently, he's written a number of articles and given a few talks on the importance of culture to mineral exploration and how it is one of the most important aspects of a successful mineral exploration group. Originally, we had intended this topic to be just one episode, but to be honest, the interview went so well that we decided to split it up into two episodes. So this week on Exploration Radio, part one of What Makes a Successful Mineral Explorer with Mark Bennett. Thanks for your time, obviously. That's um, okay. I know a little bit about your background. What actually interests me yeah. is that is the repeated success rather than the one, the last one. I think you've talked about that, but there's more to you than, than that. I'm sure you'll agree. Yeah, no, there's sort of a symptom of the rest, I think. Everyone's an influence of the culture they've been in. Yeah, but you have your own culture now, too. Totally, which is sort of the product of everything that's gone before, lessons learned and things kept and things jettisoned along the way. I think some people know some of them, but I think what would be interesting to hear them. So you're a successful explorer, you found multiple war bodies and the last one's the famous one, but you found them in different organisations. What do you think makes a successful explorer? Well, yeah, there's no short answer to that one. If you're an explorer, you, you're generally a geologist and you've got a geological training and um, there are a lot of good geologists and a lot of good exploration geologists. Uh, the, the real differentiator is turning that into actually realising something and that's where everything else comes in. So I sort of call an explorationist something very different from a geologist. An explorationist is a geologist, a psychologist, a financier, a pragmatist, all, all sorts of other things thrown in as well. And I'm not quite sure where I'd begin on, on what was most important, really. Maybe we start right at the beginning with geology yeah. and then move from geology into the other elements because that's probably more what we're interested in. You're trained as a geologist, that's your background. 
how important was that in getting towards becoming an explorationist? Oh, fundamentally important. I mean, I wouldn't be one without that. And it's not something I just fell into. I was interested in geology from an early age and went to a school that taught geology. So that sort of gave me a bit of a kickstart. Got into a university that did um, applied geology. So my formal geological education was, was geology plus mining, which was good because that kept the science within a sort of real world commercial context as well, which often on a pure science course you, you won't have. So obviously doing that was, was, was pretty important. I always wanted to be involved in mineral exploration and mining from from start and and sort of always tried to move towards that. But doing a, a mining geology degree in the UK in a system that was sort of set up for an old colonial era setup where where all the geologists get out from the UK and work in South Africa and Canada and Australia and so on, uh, that was no longer relevant. Meant that graduating as a geologist in the UK, you either go into academia or, or oil, or you end up running a supermarket. So I always had an expectation that I'd need to try and infiltrate myself into another country to actually get a job doing what I liked. And that took a long time. I actually had probably a four year period in which I just did little contracts with North Sea Oil and Irish Sea Gas, even sort of industrial minerals, gypsum and vermiculite. Was this um, post-PhD, pre-PhD? This was uh, post-PhD primarily. Uh, so you went straight through? No, I, during my first degree, the university encouraged us to have a sabbatical year before we finished our first degree. So we went out for 12 months and got a job with, with industry. And my particular job was with North Broken Hill, with working for Ian Plymer of all people. For real? Yeah. Was that influential or...? Positively negative. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, he, I mean, he was, was more of a typical exploration manager back then rather than a oh, celebrity. Yeah. Okay. No, he was a pretty smart exploration manager and I learned yeah. a lot on that, but it was a finite thing. It was a 12 month job going back to uni, oh, yeah. went back to uni, finished the degree. By the time I finished the degree, the industry was in one of its cyclic busts, so there were no jobs. Simply to keep my hand in because I didn't feel particularly strong aptitude for doing a PhD. I, I did a PhD on uh, on manganese mineralisation for three and a half years, during which time there was another boom. By the end of which there was another bust. <laughs> Timing of doing your PhD. <laughs> yeah. So no jobs again, and that's when I sort of picked up these these little contracts, just hand to mouth type things to to do that, and they eventually fizzled out. I ended up working in radioactive waste disposal, which was not exactly one of the things you would pick. <laughs> uh, those contracts ran out, and I ended up on the dole in the UK in my mid to late twenties with no future. So I basically started writing letters to companies in Australia, no jobs. One company from South Africa approached me, which was uh, Jedmin, during the apartheid era, and that was the last place I wanted to be, but I was getting so desperate that I was on the brink of actually going for that job, yeah. which would have been in Valcom in Orange Free State, Africana Heartland in the middle of apartheid, which wouldn't have been a nice thing. And I believe in fate in a, in a strange sort of way in what we do, but literally after 12 months of thinking, what the hell am I gonna do next? In the same mail came a letter from Western Mining saying, we haven't got a job, but if you're ever passing, we'll talk to you wow. in Melbourne. And here am I in, uh, in Sheffield in the UK. 
and a permanent residency visa for Australia that I applied for 18 months earlier and forgotten about because demand was so great. So I thought, okay, these two things coming in the same mail, I'm, I'm going to do this. So I basically wrote two letters, one to the South African company saying, see you next week, I had a desperation, and the other saying, you won't see me next week. Left those with my mum. Took out a bank loan, got on the plane to Australia, knocked on the door of WMC in Adelaide. And uh, again, as luck would have it, there were no jobs, but that very day, one of the geologists in Kalgoorlie had resigned. So they said, oh yeah, we'll, we'll take him. That is incredible. Yeah, you know, life is, is sort of full of these instances where things can yeah. turn out very differently just on the toss of a coin one way or another. I've got a formal question that says here, you know, talk about WMC and how you got started in WMC, thinking about, you know, someone coming and visiting you in a classical recruitment way, but you've got a far more interesting way of having gone into coming. That's surreal. Coming up after the break, we talked to Mark about WMC, what made the company so good, what changed while he was there, and why did he leave it in the end? Now, normally in a podcast, during an ad break, you would hear from the sponsors of that podcast. Since we're just starting, we don't really have any sponsors, so we thought we would try something different. Some of our listeners out there might actually know who Steve and I are. Maybe we've had the pleasure of working together, but there's probably a lot of people out there that don't know anything about us. With that in mind, this next segment will probably do very little in helping you. But let's try it anyways. Let's find out a little bit more about Steve Beresford. So Steve, we're going to ask you a few questions. They're just going to have short answers. But before we do, is there anything that's off bounds? (laughs) I have no idea. I don't even have a clue what you're going to ask. (laughs) That's perfect. Let's go for it then. First question. If you weren't a geologist, what would you be doing instead? Uh, Some form of scientist. Yeah, maybe neuroscientist or psychology, something like that. But that's my, my current interests, yeah. Um, most difficult country you've worked in or been to? Uh, Cote d'Ivoire, just because it scarred me. It's hurt and uh, left me uh, and, and removed years of my life. <laughs> Let's try something more positive. Best place you've worked in or a place you would want to live in? Uh, best place I've worked in is probably Greenland. Stunning geology, stunning country. Uh, best place I'd want to live, um, I don't know, somewhere like Cape Town or Vancouver um, would probably be top of the list, other than home, New Zealand. So the mountains are a common theme in all those places? The mountains are compulsory, which is why I live in Perth. <laughs> Perfect. And what's a skill or talent that you have that not many people know about? Ooh, a skill or a talent? Um, that not many people know about. Mm. Jeez, that's tough. Um, the answer will be provided in the next episode of Expression Radio. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure if I have any skills. You haven't mentioned the one skill most people know you for, which is the fact that you can do the haka. I do. I've done it in some very embarrassing places. That would be described as a skill slash talent? Yeah. I was once described at a uh, joint venture meeting in, in Jinchuan as the pasty white man doing the dance. I don't think it's quite got the same uh, power that it's supposed to. I think that's a pretty good note to end on. I want to talk about WMC yep. because 
we all spend time now looking back and we realize the hell is a utopian explorer but we also look back and see so many things that we were that we learned from that organization so what do you think made WMC good and what went wrong in WMC as well from your perspective um, what did you learn pretty well most of what I know I learned in my ten years at WMC apart from the formal geological bit yeah I think um, ten years at WMC basically set me up for life in that there was in the geological guild across the various exploration groups and the operations there was probably a couple of hundred geologists and a lot of really good ones and a lot of communication between them and I think Roy Woodall's biggest single achievement was basically enabling that yeah. um, he wasn't necessarily hands-on involved in it but he enabled that to happen and if you look at the people that went through WMC and you look at the rest of the industry now, it's basically been the, the spawning ground for much of the rest of the industry since. So I, I spent the best part of 10 years doing a whole variety of things, looking for exploration and mining, different commodities, nickel, gold mainly, different places, Western Australia, Victoria, overseas, West Africa, for example. So the people I work with and what I learned from those people was really pivotal in sort of getting me to the next stage. But there was a, time, a point, I guess, where there were a lot of older guys who'd been in WMC a long time and going to make way for youngsters very quickly. And so there was a bit of a logjam in terms of career progression. And that's the wall that a number of people, I think, hit and decided to, to seek alternative opportunities because of that. So that was part of one of the negative reasons, I think. Also, although boardrooms are pretty remote from what you do on the ground as a geologist, I think we did see the effect of differences of opinion at the board level between Roy Woodall and the other directors about how things were to be run. The net result was it demotivated or disincentivised a lot of the, the good people and they started leaving uh, and they were replaced by a whole new wave of people who didn't have the same level of, of learning. Did you see that change during your time at WMC? Yeah, I, my, my period was sort of the, the end of the, the golden age and the start of the decline, so I actually saw it change quite a lot. And there were little symptoms of that. For example, initially, when I was working at Victory Goldmine as an underground production geologist, as a geologist, your performance was judged by other geologists irrespective of what part of the company you were in. And so, you know, if you performed well, you got a good review and, and that, that, that sort of influenced things. That got changed so that you're, you were reviewed by the local resident manager who was a surveyor or a mine engineer or something like that. And so the review people got was purely based on the performance of that operation, irrespective of what your contribution or effort was and irrespective of whether what you were doing could influence those outcomes. That's just a little example, but it made a huge difference basically, starting leaving, because they felt that they weren't valued anymore and, and that what they did wouldn't have a direct influence on, on the outcome for them. So do you think that, um, if we're trying to unpack that, what is WMC culture good at? I mean, one of them was science-driven, geology-driven exploration. That's the one that most people, I think, are aware of. There's lots of people who are trying to recreate this. Not many of them have been very successful at trying to recreate WMC. What do you think it was? 
or what part of WMC culture would you replicate? I think that having a group of geoscientists of that critical mass and the mobility to move amongst different parts of the company meant there was a lot of interaction for a start. And from my perception of uh, the bigger companies these days, uh, and from personal knowledge of people who've been recruited for graduate programs and things like that, it seems that people's experience is quite different to that. They end up being in a compartment and don't really get exposed to the things around them and can stay there for a long time so they don't broaden their, their knowledge. So I, I think people are getting recruited for a job rather than a career. If you want a job, go to the Pilbara, take the cash. If you want a career, you're going to be wanting to do this. This is going to be part of who you are. Absolutely. And in the days of WMC, geologists weren't paid particularly well. And so there was a bit of a natural selection process that happened in the, the guys that ended up working there did it because that's what they really wanted to do, not because of the, the, the paycheck at the end of the day. And one of the unfortunate things about the boom is that it's, you know, demand for ge geologists jacked up salaries. It's attracted a lot of people into the industry who don't necessarily have a passion for it, don't want to be in the dirt and the dust, and don't have the, the right aptitudes necessarily. So that's a key difference from the WMC of then and, 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 and its equivalents of now as well, I think. So can I read into that, that less and less willingness to get dirty? Is that where WMC went before the end? Uh, one of the things that disturbed me a bit about WMC, it increased a lot of people with PhDs, myself included. Yeah. But I always try and deny I've got one because it's actually a disadvantage in, in what I do. But that's another story. But they recruited a lot of highly qualified, very intelligent people and somewhere along the way those people lost sight of what they were there for and they spent more time and energy competing against one another rather than all trying to achieve one objective. So this is something I've seen now in a few companies where you get this, it's a very much a higher education um, symptom where intelligent educated people end up creating confrontational culture as opposed to a collaborative culture and start forgetting they all work on the same team but are worried about how good they are as opposed to how good we are. It appears to be a characteristic of uh, highly educated individuals. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> there, there are a number we probably both know. Yeah, I know. And I guess when working in industry is blurred with the boundaries of academia, uh, with highly qualified people. Academia, almost by its very nature, comes with a certain sense of intellectual pride and an adversarial approach in terms of having to be right and prove the other person wrong. And, and I think that can rear its head sometimes. We actually have a saying here, and that is don't let your ego get in the, get in the way of your wallet. One of the things I realised why I wanted to leave academia is that I hated the adversarial nature. What I subsequently realised is that adversarial nature does exist inside industry as well. It's actually one of the main limiters for, for progress. So you use the word technocrat, and I am a technocrat, and you sort of talk negatively about technocrats. And I assume you're talking about specific people or culture. You want to talk about what bothers you? Uh, nothing bothers me about technocrats per se. <laughs> What I've found is, you know, as geologists in industry, we spend a lot of time consoling ourselves about how difficult it can be and how we're treated by management and 
we'll get dumped and end up as taxi drivers and, yep. and things like that, and that we have very little say in what happens. And also, for example, on a mine, it's generally a mining engineer in charge telling geologists what to do and regarding them as glorified samplers yep. uh, more than anything else. But I think part of the problem is because we as geologists tend to stay in our little geological world. And whilst there's nothing wrong with being a, a very technically focused geologist, because we're that way inclined, we're basically just treated as a commodity by the commercial guys who just see us as, as things they can hire and fire that they yeah. often don't actually value people's skills. And the only way is we as geologists can actually take control of our, our own destiny with, in terms of our positions within a particular company personally or as geologists within mining companies or the industry as a whole is actually uh, wrestle that power from those who have it right now. And the only way to do it is to basically beat those people at their own game and become more commercial and hard-nosed because that way that we'll get more credibility with those guys. And uh, the more we're perceived to be boffins, the less seriously we tend to be taken. And I, I sort of had a sense of awareness of that in, in some of my past companies, but it was only when I started running my own companies and speaking to the finance guys in the outside world that I really realised how prevalent that sort of attitude is. I really like that answer because as a person who is more at the technocrat end and is aware, well aware of his own weaknesses and has attempted to go down the path that, that you've gone down, the reality is there is very limited value in continuing to become more boffiny without developing the other skills. Coming up after the break, we talk to Mark about why he ultimately left WMC and what does he not like about working for big companies. If you like this episode, please tune in next week for the second part of this interview. And please keep tuning in weekly for new episodes of Exploration Radio. Now, let's get back to the interview. So Mark, after WMC, how did you get into Lionel? It's, it's the opposite of what you might expect in terms of deliberate planning and so on. So I was in, in Western Mining, I'd reached a point in my own mind where despite the great time I had there and the good education, sort of hands-on education I had, I'd got a bit sick of the bureaucracy that, that was proliferating within the company and, and some of the sort of ill-directed, sort of ego-driven infighting that was going on. And I thought I fancied a change. And at that point, I just found Forestania Gold, as it was then. I was actually on the way from Melbourne to West Africa on a, on a uh, fly-and-fly acting with, with Western Mining and I nipped into Perth and said, you got a job? I said, yeah, okay. And, and I resigned from WMC wow. on the spot. And my biggest fear at the time was, uh, what the hell am I doing, going from a big company with a secure job into this little company with God knows what. But I did it anyway, and probably six months later, that's when all the redundancies came through at WMC, and everybody who'd stayed behind got the chop, and I was the only one left with the job. <laughs> so a question I've always wanted to ask you about WMC is, is what happened in West Africa with the yep. cerebral malaria, yep. and whether that affected you in any way. I mean, not like mentally, I can see it. <laughs> 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 but no, as in 
whether that whole experience has changed you. I've been sick myself in Cote d'Ivoire and it's definitely changed me. It's had a, an impact on what I will do for the rest of my life and how I see certain companies, etc. Mm. What happened to you? That was one of the straws that broke the camel's back in that, you know, the, back in Melbourne, the company was very vocal about safety and this and that and the other. And at the time, for example, the board wouldn't fly Cathay Pacific because they deemed that too dangerous. Yet they were happy to have other people on the other side of the world in situations that were far more dangerous than that. It, yeah. it, it was the hypocrisy that got to me. And yeah, when you get cerebral malaria and you, uh, you realise that you could be dead in 24 hours, it sort of, you sort of reevaluate things. Yeah. And there were other times in West Africa when I had an AK-47 held to my head and you, you question whether it's really worth you being there when that happens. I was in, in a plane that nearly crashed and you question whether you want to end your days in a metal tube plummeting into the Sahara Desert for, for nothing. Yeah. And so, two entirely different ways. I guess that influenced me. I don't, I, I don't want to ever work in high-risk places. There's plenty of things to do in more sensible places. I wouldn't expect to put other people in, in harm's way like that if I'm not to. So we don't even contemplate things like that. But also, in this big company, small company culture way, it was another example of what I tend to view as big companies saying all the right words but not necessarily doing all the right things. Whereas in a small company, you can't hide that sort of stuff. And that was one of the sort of things I thought should be jettisoned. That is exactly why I asked you the question, because I figured that was the case, but I've never ever asked you before. But I thought thought about it recently, but I got ill myself. I'm like, this hypocrisy is turning me away from these companies, simply because you know, we're not living the words. Well, so. to actually sort of expand on that a bit in terms of talking about hypocrisy, after the event, there was a safety meeting and the main item on the agenda was petitioning the local council in Melbourne to install a pedestrian crossing so that the accountants could get to work safely. And my near-death experience was deemed not worthy of actually discussing because it was deemed a disease and not a safety incident. As mentioned at the start of this episode, this is part one of our interview with Mark Bennett coming episode will be part two of this interview. Here's a preview of that episode. The beginning of, of Sirius, one of the things that I think that you did that was remarkable is that you did the deal with Mark Creason. We didn't have a, an XRF gun to check anything, but Creason did. So first thing the next morning, I went around to his place with the samples and we started sapping them. And that's when, you know, we were getting readings of 4 to 8% nickel and 2 to 5% copper bag after bag. There were probably about four of us, I think, there on, on that occasion, and three of us had big smiles on our face. And Creasy was just sitting in the corner looking miserable. Yeah. And I said, come on, this is pretty good. Cheer up. He says, the last time I was happy was in 1976. <laughs> <laughs> this marks our inaugural episode in this podcast series. If you like this episode and want to find out more, please go to explorationradio.com. Here you'll find more information about each episode, the content that we cover in it, 
and some links that might be interesting. You can also reach us on the website or through Facebook, LinkedIn, or any of the other social media links that we have up on the website. If you enjoyed this podcast, please review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if there's something you didn't like, please let us know as well. Ultimately, we made this podcast for you, the listeners, and we want to know how we can make it more interesting to you. We'd love to hear from you. See you next week for another episode of Exploration Radio. And let's keep exploring. Exploration Radio.